You're listening to Plenary Session. In today's episode, you're in for a real treat. I have a special guest, Dr. Tom Baer. Tom Baer is the Deputy Cancer Director of the OHSU Night Cancer Institute. He's a practicing prostate cancer doctor and professor of medicine here. He has had a long career as a clinical trialist and has experienced both the ups and downs of running clinical trials. And we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about philanthropy. And we're going to talk about future directions in cancer research, as well as the interpretation of some prior studies. So you won't want to miss this discussion. So stay tuned. But first... I'm going to talk about a paper that appeared in JAM Oncology entitled Profiling Pre-Existing Antibodies in Patients Treated with Anti-PD-1 Therapy for Advanced Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. I'm only talking about this paper to make a very simple point. It's called the Guarantee Time Bias, and it's something the authors should have known about. So stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. Write a review if you have the time. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at plenary underscore session. And if you really want to support this podcast, now there's a new option. You can go to patreon.com and you can back us, patreon.com forward slash plenary session. You can back us at any level that uh, you choose, and supporters will get access to links and articles that we discuss on this podcast, as well as slides for presentations. So go to Patreon. We could use your support. All right. First up, the paper in JAM Oncology, Profiling Pre-Existing Antibodies in Patients Treated with Immunotherapy for Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer. It's quite an interesting study that makes a fundamental fallacy that I hate to see made because it's something that we should just know better about. Let me tell you what this paper sought to do. They took patients who were being treated with non-small cell lung cancer with Nevo or Pembro, and they asked whether or not the presence of certain pre-existing antibodies, those for rheumatoid factor, ANA, antithyroglobulin, and antithyroid peroxidase, were correlated with clinical outcomes. They measured these blood tests prior to receiving therapy, and then they followed a bunch of patients, and they had the answer. And that answer is presented in figure three, which is no difference in overall survival if you had the antibody versus if you didn't. There you go. Pre-existing antibodies appear to have no difference in overall survival if given anti-PD-1 therapy. That's really what the paper should have been, but unfortunately, these authors decided to push the envelope because you don't get far in life with negative findings. You really need those findings to be positive. And how can you get these findings positive? Well, you'll have to look at other things. So how about we look at something called IRAEs, immune-related adverse events. It might be true that there is no relationship between having these antibodies or not having these antibodies and how well you do with these drugs. But maybe people who suffer particular side effects that immunotherapy leads to, the so-called immune-related adverse events, maybe they do better than people who don't have those adverse events. And in fact, these authors point out in the discussion that there are other papers that reach that finding. Other people are finding that that's true. And this goes back many, many years to a study that came out in non-small cell lung cancer called FLEX, which randomized patients to the addition of cetuximab or not to chemotherapy. And if you had a rash, lo and behold, you had a better outcome than if you didn't. 
There is one fundamental problem with every single study that asks whether or not the presence of some side effect is correlated with a better or worse outcome, and that is called immortal time or guarantee time. And I just want to explain what that concept is. But first, let's see what they find. Whoa, figure one. And somehow, strangely, figure one has bumped up to the top of the figures, even though that's not really the hypothesis or the title of the paper. Figure one shows if you had an immune-related adverse event versus if you didn't have an immune-related adverse event, there is a dramatic difference in progression-free survival, hazard ratio 0.45, and a difference in OS, hazard ratio 0.42. In other words, having these side effects is much better than not having these side effects. In fact, the authors conclude that in their results section, the median PFS was 10 0.3 months, but 3.4 months in those who didn't develop immune-related adverse events. The median OS was not reached if you did develop immune-related adverse effects, but only 11.4 months for those who did not. That's significantly better, they note. And then here, buried at the end, the median OS was 17.6 months among those with pre-existing antibodies, but 14.6 months among those without. No significant difference there. Okay, what's the difference between these two things? The pre-existing antibody, that is something that's measured at time zero, prior to the start of therapy. You either categorize people as having it or not having it. The presence of adverse events is something measured on therapy. It's measured past time zero. And if you classify people based on any event that occurs after time zero, you introduce, or at least have the risk of introducing, unless you're careful, the guarantee time. What do I mean by that? Elsewhere in the paper, the authors note that for 34% of patients, symptoms developed within eight weeks. Okay, for the rest of them, presumably, they developed after eight weeks, those immune-related adverse events. In order to develop an immune-related adverse event at week nine, what must be true? What must be true is you are alive at week nine. If you develop an immune-related adverse event in week 15 of therapy, what must have been true? You must have been alive at week 15. In other words, there is a guaranteed amount of time for the people who have experienced the side effect. It's a guaranteed time. It's a biased time that's being built into the system because somebody who passes away of their disease at week nine doesn't, without having an immune-related adverse event does not have the opportunity to experience the immune-related adverse event and will inherently go in the group that did not have that. In other words, in the Kaplan-Meier survival curve of patients with immune-related adverse events, the median time to experience that adverse event is guaranteed to that group. That is the guarantee or immortal time. So, of course, the group that has some side effect will have a longer OS than the group without it because they had to live at least as long to experience the side effect. Okay, what's a way to overcome guarantee time? The most credible and easy way to do that is the use of a landmark survival analysis. In other words, we say, of all the people alive and well at 10 weeks who are still on therapy, we'll sort groups into those who had the immune-related adverse event and those who did not, and we'll plot out their subsequent Kaplan-Meier survival. And we can ask whether or not people who had early immune-related adverse events had better survival than those who did not. But merely asking whether or not this event developed at any time point post the initiation of therapy introduces this bias, which is that you had to have lived at least as long as that AE. In other words, you are 
enriching the group of people with the AEs for people who have already lived longer by very virtue of the fact that they have had the AEs and you are putting all the people who pass away very quickly who did not even have the opportunity to develop AEs in the control group. If you're interested in this topic and if you are a student of academic medicine and academic oncology, you ought to be. I suggest you read the paper, The Challenges of Guaranteed Time Bias by Dr. Herder, which appeared in the JCO in 2013. And I will just read you part of the introduction and provide some of the highlights. The potential for guaranteed time bias, also known as immortal time bias, exists whenever an analysis is timed from enrollment or random assignment, such as disease-free or overall survival, is compared across groups defined by a classifying event that occurred sometime during follow-up. The types of events associated with GTB are varied and include the occurrence of objective response, onset of toxicity, or seroconversion. However, comparative analyses using these types of events as predictors are different from analyses using baseline characteristics that are specified completely before for the occurrence of any outcome event. Recognizing the potential for GTB is not always straightforward and it can be challenging to know when it is influencing the results. This article provides examples. Let's talk about some of those. I think my favorite example of the GTB that occurred in this study occurred from the NSABP B30 trial. This trial produced results of DFS and OS in the adjuvant setting. And one of the things they looked at for women who were receiving anti-hormonal therapy was whether or not women who achieved amenorrhea had better outcomes than those who did not. What does amenorrhea mean? Amenorrhea means for at least six months you went without having a period. In fact, they find that the group in which that is true, amenorrheic patients, had better DFS than the group for which that is not true. But what must have been true? In order to have amenorrhea, you had to have been followed for at least six months without having had a period, in which case you typically had to have been taking the drug for at least six months without having had a period. And what that does is it enriches a guarantee time of at least six months in the group with amenorrhea. And the authors show very nicely that if you look at this amenorrhea versus no menorrhea, there is a difference. But in the fourth panel of their figure that looks at this, they provide a landmark analysis, an 18-month landmark, saying of all the women who achieved amenorrhea sometime in the first 18 months versus all the women who got to 18 months without having achieved it, what is the difference in outcome? And then there's absolutely no difference, if anything, Amenorrhea might do a little bit worse, but it's a total wash. Um, That's the right study to do. This is the guarantee time. It is the event that classifies the two groups occurred after time zero, and thus the group that had that event happen had to have been guaranteed at least that much time for the event to happen. It doesn't necessarily mean the results are wrong, but if you have not thought about it and you have not done your analysis to get around it, you are in for a world of pain. And the other place that just came out is, you know, some of these analyses on the use of the IVC filter, where having to have received a filter, you had to have lived at least as long as the average time in which someone gets a filter. So that's a guarantee time, typically. This is really a product of some of these retrospective studies, and it's something that, you know, anyone who reads these or does this a lot should be aware of, should be cognizant of. And that's why the very impressive results in the Gem Oncology paper should have at least been cognizant of this objection, and I see no effort that they have been. The other paper I will suggest you read is called Improving Observational Studies in the Era of Big Data. This is a paper that Jenny Gill and I wrote in The Lancet. Jenny Gill came on a prior podcast to talk about this paper. That's another place where we talk about immortal time bias and ways to get around it. All right. 
That was your teaching pearl of the day, the guarantee time bias. Read more about it in these places. And now stay tuned for the interview with Dr. Tom Baer. You won't want to miss this one. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Dr. Tom Baer. Dr. Baer is the Deputy Cancer Director of the OHSU Knight Cancer Institute. He is a professor of medicine here, and he is a practicing prostate cancer oncologist. A little bit of background about Dr. Baer. Dr. Baer did his undergraduate and medical degrees at the Johns Hopkins University. He then came to OHSU to be resident. He served briefly as a chief resident for a year, and then he went on to be a fellow here at OHSU. He started on the faculty in the early 2000s, and he is now chairman of the prostate cancer team and deputy cancer director, and he's held uh, these roles for, how long has it been, Dr. Baer? (laughs) Well, uh, it's a pleasure to be here with Uh, you today. Um, uh, You know, leading the prostate cancer group really began um, when I was a fellow because there was no prostate cancer group, so that was 1997, Mm -hmm. Um, and I've uh, had the honor of of doing that that work ever since. I became the deputy director of the Cancer Center uh, in 2009, so it's been about nine years in that role. I see. And um, listeners should know that um, you're the man to be held responsible for my presence here on campus. Is that fair to say, Dr. Baer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think uh, I think I made a major contribution to attracting <laughs> this unique talent uh-huh. to OHSU. I'm very proud of that. Yeah, so listeners can direct their um, mail, email correspondence to Dr. Baer. Believe um, me, I get quite a bit. <laughs> oh, already? Okay, so maybe they could balance it out a little bit. So uh, please, uh, listeners. Um, Dr. Baer, uh, you've had a uh, I, I kind of want to take listeners through your career a little bit because I think it's so interesting. Um, uh, I don't know if you would feel that this is an appropriate characterization, but you're a tr- you're a true clinical trialist. You're a prostate cancer trialist. Is um, you're a doctor, of course, and you're a scientist, of course, um, and your focus of research has been clinical trials and running trials to advance care for prostate cancer patients. Would you feel that's that's fair? Yeah, I think that's a very fair description. Early on in my career, I also had a a basic research lab. It was mm-hmm. a small operation, and at some point, we brought in a PhD scientist to run that because um, uh, it was just too much to do at all. But uh, my really primary passion is care for prostate cancer patients and experimental therapy uh, for prostate cancer. One of the things that struck me when I was reading more about you, I mean, I, I knew a little bit about you, but it's always nice to read a little bit more. Um, some of your early papers, you made a comment that it said something like, um, as of this year, there are currently no drugs approved in metastatic castor-resistant prostate cancer that improve overall survival, and the only thing we have is something that improves symptoms, mitoxantrone. So that's kind of when you started out. And now we're at a time where we have an abundance of drugs that have met that bar, enzalutamide, abiraterone, cipolucil-T, uh, docetaxel. Um, the field has changed a lot during your, your career here. Yeah, there's been there's been a great deal of change, uh, and you know the first drug to demonstrate an overall survival advantage and be approved was docetaxel. It was approved in 2004, mm-hmm. so that was a, about seven years into my uh, uh, career as a prostate cancer physician and investigator, and it was it was really a, a landmark moment where for the first time we had something to offer uh, patients that extended survival. We now have six drugs that extend survival. Mm-hmm. We have um, uh, many treatment options, and I think the, the advances have been significant. 
But at the same time, we need to recognize that each of these agents improves survival only a modest amount, mm -hmm. and we're still not curing advanced prostate cancer. So while I think there's a lot to celebrate, um, there's also a lot of reasons to remain humble about the progress that we've made. How did you, as a fellow, when you were deciding on what um, tumor type to pour your efforts into, how did you pick prostate cancer? Well, you know, uh, uh, it was a bit of an unconventional choice. You know, I don't have a great story like my dad had prostate mm -hmm. cancer or something like that. Um, I, I wanted a job here at OHSU, and no <laughs> one was doing prostate cancer. That, that's really the story. Uh -huh. And I think now uh, that I've been in this field for my entire career, you know, you develop an identity, professional connections. I'm very much a part of that community. I view uh, being a prostate cancer investigator as very distinct and certainly not interchangeable with being a lung cancer or a breast cancer person. But at the beginning, uh, you know, really the intellectual work is very similar, mm -hmm. and one has to find an area where one can throw one's passions into, and, and for me it was a very practical decision early on. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that when you mean that now you view it as it's, di it's, very, it's different to be a prostate cancer doctor than a lung cancer doctor? Well, you know, first of all, scientifically, mm -hmm. um, uh, various cancers have have various biologic drivers and various targeted agents that have emerged as useful. So the the uh, the pathways towards treatment have diverged. You know, when when mm. when I was a, a fellow, we largely had chemotherapy, and chemotherapy was variably applied mm -hmm. across most tumor types. The, mm -hmm. the mixes and the were different. You know, the the regimens were a little different, but it was really mostly chemotherapy. With the advent of um, molecular oncology and targeted therapy, those distinctions have become greater. So clearly what you do clinically and what you do scientifically is distinct. We can learn from one another for sure, uh, but there are distinctions. But also, uh, you know, there is a, um, a social structure to oncology. You know, mm -hmm. prostate mm -hmm. cancer, like breast cancer and other cancers, has its own patient and advocate community, family community, um, has its own um, expert community, expert community, scientist community. Mm -hmm. uh, there are prostate cancer superstars, mm -hmm. both amongst the scientists and also amongst the survivors. You know, the famous people who step forward mm -hmm. and uh, reveal uh, what they've been through in order to advance awareness. So you become very much part of a community, mm -hmm. and and that's not something that's easily replaced. I see. That's interesting. I guess. Um, it sounds like to me that um, one of the things that I think maybe fellows, a lot of fellows listen to this podcast, um, might take away is that um, uh, you you went into a field with an open mind, and in part because you know you had a geographical preference, uh, but it didn't take very long for you to become really embedded in the community and to think of it as um, the right field for you. Yeah, I, you know, once you dig into it, um, uh, you become a part of it pretty quickly. And one of the things I benefited from a lot was my mentor, uh, and his advice to me, which was very much focus on what you need to do to develop in your field. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I remember to this day Dave Henner telling me it's just as important to say no as it is to say yes and mm -hmm. make sure that as opportunities come your way, uh, you're focused on what uh, what is getting you towards your goals. And so I had a five and a ten-year plan from day one and really focused right in on prostate cancer, and that um, that meant that very quickly I was a part of that community. I see. 
Oh, that's quite interesting. One of the things I was seeing recently online was a, a senior academic who said um, that one of the things she tells her trainees is that a little bit about her schedule, which is that she blocks out every day before 1 p.m. and says no meetings, and then one day a week blocks out the entire day, no meetings. And the purpose of that is to focus on one's goals. Um, is that a little bit what you mean by by focusing on one's goals early in one's career, to s- devote time to to pursue what what you know what you set out yeah. to do? Well, that, first of all, that sounds like a dream schedule. Yeah. No, that's <laughs> what I, <thought. laughs> I was so I, jealous. Uh, <laughs> I would like to uh, I'd like to come back to that. Okay, but I do think it does describe my schedule early on. Uh-huh. You know, I, um, <clears throat> I had a. One of these, uh, what, what are called K grants, which protect 75% of your time for research. And so that enabled me to really focus my time. So part of, part of what I meant is that, yes, you focus your time on those goals. But the other part is that the time you have, you focus almost entirely on what you're trying to do um, mm-hmm. and not taking on, uh, I don't know, a review article on an off topic that's not in your area of interest or mm-hmm. some case report that isn't going to have a big impact on on your career. If you have a choice between an original research article and a case report, um, Go the, with choice the, original article. the choice is clear. The choice is clear. Yes. Yeah, I think that's that's very well articulated that, that um, perhaps even at the end of your fellowship and early on in your faculty career, you have to make the transition away from case reports, review articles that you might have sought out earlier because you were just trying to get your foot in the door, um, and towards articles that um, really do advance what your academic focus is. Um, And usually case reports and review articles don't do that. And the other tough part is, as a junior faculty, typically one is not being asked to write the uh, case report for a very prominent journal. It's typically a journal that has limited readership, and so there's also a, a limit on the gain there as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's not a simple, easy mm-hmm. formula. You have to think about who's asking you. Is that a person who uh, can ask you to do more interesting things the next time, and you want to get to know them? I see. I wrote a, a, a long review article on penile cancer mm-hmm. um, because um, uh, Derek Ragvan asked me to, uh-huh. and um, uh, I, I thought I should. Uh, and it, you know, it, it was very helpful for me to to get to know Derek and to do that work, and I learned a lot on that. But in retrospect, that, that did not advance uh, my career in prostate cancer very much. That didn't. I, but I did notice that article when I was preparing for this interview because it is um, very well cited, actually. Uh, yeah, <laughs> over the years, and that probably is in part due to the a, a dearth of articles on that topic. And um, it is a very rare cancer, mm-hmm. and very few people have written about it. Yeah, it's fair to say. One of the things that impressed me about your very early on in your career um, was how quickly um, you had done, I think, important work on calcitriol. Uh, it, it looked to me like, and tell me if I'm wrong, it was 2003 when uh, that JCO article appeared, um, which was some early uh, clinical trial data suggesting that calcitriol, when combined with taxane therapy, might be able to induce responses in patients with prostate cancer. Yeah, so that work began um, in as early as 1997 I when I was a fellow fellow. with the original phase one study. Um, yeah, I think I was uniquely lucky, uh, honestly, um, uh, in that um, I 
encountered this vitamin D story, which I, which I thought was a really interesting story, and came up with an idea of how, how one might exploit it for treatment. So mm-hmm. at that time, um, first of all, I was, I was a second-year fellow. I came into a lab. My mentor said, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Go to the AACR, figure out what you want to do. Really? Okay. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so I went to the AACR. I looked at <laughs> hundreds of posters and um, ran across a fairly obscure poster about vitamin D receptor polymorphisms um, and risk of cancer, which, which is a story that didn't quite pan out in the long term, but it was an interesting story that suggested a link between prostate cancer and, and, and the vitamin D system. Um, I got interested in it because Dave was working on some polymorphism research and had a neck cancer, so that was something that the lab was doing. Mm-hmm. Dug into it, read about it, and uh, encountered a literature on uh, vitamin D receptor ligands, calcitriol being the natural ligand, 125-dihydroxyvitamin D, mm-hmm. having anti-cancer effects. Mm-hmm. But having those anti-cancer effects at relatively high concentrations mm-hmm concentrations that would be expected to cause hypercalcemia. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the barrier. And, and a lot of folks thought that um, uh, if we could only find a way to stimulate the vitamin D receptor um, mm-hmm. enough, we could realize some anti-cancer effects. Well, maybe not a lot of folks, but, mm-hmm. but no, uh, it was an, a, it was a few a... folks in the vitamin D field. Uh-huh. And, and the field was heading in the direction of designing molecules that were supposed to decouple the anti-cancer effect from the calcemic effect, right. mm-hmm. which didn't really end up working particularly well. I see. And my idea was kind of a classic oncology idea is could we dose it intermittently at high doses? Mm-hmm. It was basically a chemo idea. Right. Extrapolated you know, we, from we, principles of chemo. We right. dose chemotherapy intermittently because that mitigates the side effects um, and uh, is adequate to, to the task. And Anticipating the combination of chemotherapy, I thought maybe intermittent dosing would would do the trick. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the, the fellowship idea that led to to that, the trial in JCO. Now, was there and was there a reason you? I mean, you happen to be working on prostate cancer, but was there a vitamin D? Um, was it a, more of a seductive hypothesis for prostate cancer? Or no, not necessarily. Not necessarily. This, there was work being done in squamous cell carcinoma and breast cancer. Uh, and in point of fact, we did a couple of studies down the line uh, in other tumor types. Um, uh, but, you know, it was a good story in prostate cancer, and I was interested in prostate cancer, so it was a natural place for me to start. And we were able to do an investigator-initiated phase one trial mm-hmm. because, um, you know, calcitriol was available commercially. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it was available at very low doses, so our patients had to take upwards of a hundred or more capsules at a time. Real, oh, wow. So that was an interesting experience. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, I had this unique luxury of, of kind of by repurposing a drug, mm-hmm. having access to a drug without a pharmaceutical company involved. So kind of being able to do it uh, on my own. Wow, that is fat. So y- you had the hypothesis. You had, and it was, it was a generic drug at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it was in 2003 that you published the phase one, and then 2007 was the randomized phase two. Uh, yeah. And it did get, and it and the randomized phase two even appeared to have yeah. some signal. Yeah, so quite a bit happened between now and then. So okay. uh, you know, our initial trial was with commercially available calcitriol. Um, 
we then did a, a phase two mm-hmm. in the same way. About that time, we licensed our patent on the concept to a startup company that I was see. founded to pursue it. And mm-hmm. they developed a, a much more friendly uh, capsule, essentially, that delivered this giant dose in and one. you didn't have to take 100 pills, right? Yeah, it was three or four, something like that. I see. Uh, because the yeah, the amount of drug is is, is tiny. I yeah, see, right? It's, it's mostly um, it's mostly just pat, yeah, uh, just the oil in which it's suspended. It's an oil soluble mm-hmm. uh, vitamin. Um, so uh, this new formulation went through you know two animal species, went through a phase one trial on its own, and then went into a randomized phase two that looked pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were very very encouraged at that point. And. And um, and then it, and and then the randomized phase three trial, the ascent study, that came out a few years later in the JCO. Yeah, and um, and it was it was a negative study. It was a little yeah. disappointing. Yeah, it was very disappointing for somebody who's in. And so, I guess yeah. What what did the, what did you learn from all this? I mean, what, what yeah? It must have, it must have been personally disappointing because you yeah. had invested so much of your energies into it. You know, I, I learned a lot. Uh, first of all, um, to this day, we don't really know for sure why Ascent was negative. There, there are fundamentally three possibilities. Uh, one is that um, the idea just doesn't work, um, and that's certainly the most likely explanation. Um, but another was the design of the trial, that the two arms of the study were not symmetric with regard to the dose and schedule of docetaxel, and that's a historical artifact, which I'm happy to get into if you think it's interesting. But uh, Yeah, I didn't know that. So in the control arm, was it Q3-week docetaxel, and then the treatment was? Yeah, so we developed the regimen as a weekly regimen. I see. Mm-hmm. And uh, between when we did that uh-huh. and the ascent trial, docetaxel the three-weekly docetaxel mm-hmm. became yeah. approved, and so yeah. a choice had to be made whether to redo the phase two with a three-weekly docetaxel and delay everything. Right or take our chances, so to speak. And it wasn't my call at that point due to uh-huh. conflict of interest since there was a patent involved. I uh-huh. wasn't involved in the in the phase three. Um, uh, but you know, it was a tough decision. I don't, yeah, I don't know that decision was right or wrong. It was the best decision made under the circumstances. But, but it is conceivable that the weekly docetaxel handicapped the combination because mm-hmm. weekly docetaxel right. didn't appear to be as good. And then when you give it weekly, what was the dose that was given? It's not 75 milligrams per meter squared. No, yeah. it was 36 milligrams per meter squared. So I see. It wasn't a symmetric dose either. It wasn't a symmetric dose, yeah. So yeah. the cumulative dose over three weeks would be higher, about yes. 109 milligrams yeah. per meter or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, Interesting. And, you know, the third possibility is just bad luck. You know, mm-hmm. a, right. As you know, with a p-value of 0.05, right. it's a l- one out of 20 times you either get lucky or unlucky, depending how you look at it. I think it's... It's an interesting story to me um, because I'm going to come to this in a second, the, the book you wrote. But um, it, if that same phase two study that was positive um, that led to the phase three, had you been 10 years in the future, you would have had marketing authorization, I suspect. Because, for instance, olertumumab, the um, uh, drug in sarcoma, that was a phase two. The primary endpoint was not overall survival, but they happened to find one and they got it to market and the phase three is ongoing. Um, I think the regulatory climate has changed a little bit over time, and um, and and so I think it is interesting um, how things might have been different at you know the time you did it. That's amazing to me because yes. history yeah. has taught us over and over again that these kinds of results don't necessarily hold up. 
Yes, and uh, well, I share that view, and I know, but I don't think the just as uh, I'll, I'll take the heat for this following statement. Uh, but I don't think Dr. Gottlieb shares that view, and in fact, the FDA has put out some guidance documents that saying in a phase two study, perhaps overall survival, they've raised this issue. Should it be considered an endpoint for accelerated approval, which is very different than prior endpoints for accelerated approval, which of course are surrogate endpoints. This will be the first time a hard endpoint is used for accelerated approval, but a hard endpoint with lots of uncertainty. But so I, what you're saying is we should have waited longer before we started that uh, <laughs> yeah. research. If you had waited 10 years, you would be on the market, I suspect, and you could be delaying your phase three yeah. for quite a few more years. Well, you know, the flip side of, of this issue is that um, I think scientifically mm-hmm. the interesting to do, thing to do would be to repeat <clears throat> the experiment correctly. Right? right, of course, yes. But one of the things I've learned is that the financial enthusiasm for doing so after a phase three trial that failed is close to zero. Yeah. So it's impossible. And that is a, an issue that I think it's interesting to me how human enthusiasms and credibility of data don't always go hand in hand. And so they, there is, they're in both directions, there are exaggerated responses. It's a social system it's that we operate system, in, yeah. absolutely. You know, it, the reason that story I think is um, so interesting to me is uh, a couple years ago I read this book, Cancer Clinical Trials, A Common Sense Guide to Experimental Cancer Therapies and Clinical Trials. This is a book that I understand you took a year sabbatical because this mattered to you a great deal, and you co-wrote this book with um, Larry Axmaker, who um, is um, somebody who's written a couple other books, um, and an educator, and and even a patient. Yeah. Um, and this is a book that is uh, short and sweet. It has. Um, a line that I really loved, which was, um, you said that patients who are participating in clinical trials for experimental drugs, sometimes they get a drug that doesn't yet have a name, but it usually has a name a lot like a license plate, like MDV 3100 license plate. And I thought that really is, yeah, nail on the head. Um, But I really like this book because this is a book for somebody who's a patient who's thinking about participating in a clinical trial. And I also like it because you wrote this after you had had and we're going to talk about the positive experience in a minute, but you'd had had experiences in both directions in clinical trials, disappointment, but also tremendous success. Um, and I think that carries forward into this book, and it does convey, I think, the nuance of participating in a clinical trial. Yeah, thank you. Oh, what made you, this is, this is an unusual thing, in, what made you take a year to work on this book? What possessed you? Well, you know, um, as you introduced me, you, you mentioned that I'm a clinical trialist mm-hmm. in my heart, and that, that's what I am. And I um, I talk to a great many patients about clinical trials as an option for their care. Mm-hmm. And I find over and over again that um, even the most educated patients have gaps in their knowledge and understanding. Um, and so I, I looked for resources that I could suggest to them, and there are some resources online, but I none that were really comprehensive, complete, and um, addressed all, all the various issues, whether it's the financial issues or how you make a decision, some of the practical issues, what to expect, how to advocate for yourself as a patient on a clinical trial. So I really wanted to create something that would fill that gap and um, uh, help patients come to an understanding uh, about how they might choose to be or not to be a part of a clinical trial in the course of their cancer care. Mm-hmm. And how did you decide to partner with Larry Axmaker? So Larry's Larry's passed away since we wrote this oh, book. He was a, a long, long-term patient of mine and became a friend of mine. Um, I think I looked after Larry for about fifteen years. Um, oh. 
Uh, and he, you know, we got to know each other. He, he did very well. He was a participant in many clinical trials, did well for a very long time. If I look back in his record, there's probably 100 visits, uh, you know, so a, a lot of time mm-hmm. together in the clinic. And, um, you know, he shared with me that he wrote a book um, about his experience, um, Real Men Get Prostate Cancer Too. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when I got interested in writing a book, I, I had no idea how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I just, uh, one day I asked him if he'd have any interest in writing a book with me. It was just uh, at the spur of the moment. Mm-hmm. I, I figured um, I needed a partner to help me figure out how to do this. And he said, sure. And that was kind of the start of that collaboration. I see. And I think that's what I think people who are um, patients who pick up this book and read it, I think they can all, it's you know incredibly accessible and, and that shows that it's clearly a partnership between um, you know, a clinician who spends a great deal of time thinking about this and somebody who's on the other end of things um, who um, thinks about um, what they would like to know and what's uncertain and why should why should they should participate and what to do if something goes wrong and things of that nature. Now I want to talk a little bit about the MDV 3100 story, Medivation. Sure. This is another very interesting story, and I'll give listeners a little bit of background about that. This is the drug Medivation, which ended up becoming enzalutamide, which has um, multiple FDA approvals, originally um, overall survival post-docetaxel in prostate cancer, a trial called PREVAIL, which is a trial led by Dr. Baer that um, appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2014, I believe, and that was pre-docetaxel, showing overall survival advantage, despite the fact crossover was appropriately applied in that study, um, that it had already been shown benefit in the latter line, so control arm patients had a path to it. Um, And now, more recently, with metastasis-free survival um, in the... uh, um, biochemically recurrent um, space in the pre-metastatic space. Um, This is an interesting story to me because I think many people know in the history of prostate cancer, we learned very early on, I think, in the work of Huggins in the 40s that the androgen receptor pathway is vitally important. And we drugged it with some first-generation anti-androgen therapies like bicalutamide. But by the mid-2000s, and tell me if I'm wrong here, it would be fair to say that enthusiasm for drugging the androgen receptor had waned. Many people had thought you had drugged it as much as you could drug it. Um, Then in 2009 in the science paper uh, by, um, and I I believe you're an author on that paper too, the paper that uh, came up, that was run by Sawyer's group. Um, And it shows that even in patients who are castrate resistant, androgen receptor signaling is important. And then they performed a large molecular screen to identify novel compounds that target androgen receptor with high potency, um, starting with two sort of backbone compounds. And one of the things that came out in their drug screen was MDV3100. Um, And that showed response even in tumors that were thought to be castrate resistant. Is that fair to fair to summarize? Yeah, I mean, I think what what I took away from this experience is that the best ideas are the really obvious ones that <laughs> just stare you right in the face. I mean, yeah. if you think about it, the, um, the central role of androgen receptor signaling in prostate cancer is uh, indisputable and obvious. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, th- there's obvious clinical evidence that uh, w- when conventional hormonal therapy fails, the hormonal system is active. You know, we know that PSA is an androgen-regulated gene. Almost every patient who progresses on conventional hormonal therapy 
has a rising PSA. I mean, so it's not a mystery what's going on. We know that second-line hormonal therapies of the past, things like bicalutamide, ketoconazole, estrogens, even aminoglutethamide, mm-hmm. um, they all have response rates. They're modest and they're not durable and they haven't been shown to improve survival. But this concept of second and third-line hormonal interventions was around for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And then you know, tissue studies began to show that androgen receptor expression and signaling PSA expression was seen in, in biopsies of castrate patients uh, who, whose cancer was progressing. So it's obvious that the androgen receptor remained active and that it needed to be targeted uh, uh, more effectively. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess no one else other than Charles Sawyers and his group thought to really take the next logical step and look for better drugs. So and that is a little surprising to me because bicalutamide was developed um, in the 1990s, yeah, um, and and prostate cancer, in terms of um, uh, it's obviously one of the five most common cancers, um, and uh, a huge uh, potential market share for any company. Um, so I guess it seems to me like I guess I'm a little surprised that um, that there wasn't more interest in just. Another way one might have arrived at the same path is if after bicalutamide, a bunch of companies had said, we're going to make a Me Too bicalutamide, and maybe somebody by chance would have more potency yeah. at the receptor. Well, I think that's another example of the sociology of cancer research. Okay. So yeah. Yeah. A, a couple things that, that I might uh, bring to your attention. One is that bicalutamide was not the first androgen receptor antagonist. There was flutamide, there was nilutamide, there was bicalutamide, mm-hmm. there was suproterone acetate in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these agents were tested in many, many randomized trials as part of a concept called combined androgen blockade. Mm. Um, you mean these two drugs together? Yeah, so uh-huh. luprolide plus bicalutamide yeah. versus luprolide alone. Um, you know, yeah. th- there were more than 25 such randomized studies. There was a whole decade of, of nothing but randomized studies of uh-huh. combined androgen blockade versus single-agent androgen blockade. And in aggregate, that did not show a compelling benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also a very large effort to develop um, bicalutamide as a single agent, mm-hmm. um, 8,000 patients. Um, and wow. it, it also didn't produce a compelling advance. And so I think the concept sort of ran out of steam, sort of like high-dose calcitriol ran out of steam right. when you know $100 million was spent on a phase three trial or whatever, and mm-hmm. it, 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 it didn't work. So. I don't think it's the it's that no one could think of it. I think there just was not the intellectual focus on that area after that decade of disappointment. And the obvious conclusion that we didn't have a good enough drug uh, and not that the underlying concept is not useful just didn't occur to many people. It's interesting. I see. I wonder if um, one of the advances that happened in the decade of disinterest was advances in high-throughput drug screening. Because uh, one of the virtues of enzalutamide is its potency is incredible. Is it forty times the potency of bicalutamide? Forty, fifty times something. I, like I think so. I don't. Yeah. I don't recall the exact number. And that's a product I think of. And I and I was just reading in that science paper that I think Sawyer's group has actually patented the mechanism by which they identify the compound. That yeah. sort of high throughput screening mechanism. You know, I think everything is built on the shoulders of the of uh, of others and other advances. So I think drug screening improved. I think the ability to measure. <laughs> androgens in tissue, detailed androgen assessment, not a simple thing to do, improved um, 
the ability to even do simple things like biopsy metastases in mm-hmm. a patient with advanced prostate cancer, which sounds simple, but it's actually uh, not commonly done until the last decade or so. I see. So all these things enabled this kind of an advance. And in, and the time from that basic science publication to the first clinical report that appeared in the Lancet was, by my calculation, one year. How was it? So it was very fast or something. Well, you know, the, the, the publication date is not the same as the, uh, when the, work was the done. research date. Yeah. But I will say that, that the initial evaluation of enzalutamide was probably the fastest of any drug, perhaps in all of oncology, because, um, you know, we, we did a phase one two study that enrolled 140 patients in about a year. I think it was a little, little under 12 months. Wow. And at the end of that study, we were able to plan two phase three trials. I um, see. This was prevail and... Um, prevail and affirm. And affirm, yeah. So that's extraordinary. And, yeah. and uh, I will say a couple of things. I think we did a, a decent job of it. But I would also say when you have an obviously effective drug, things are a lot easier. I see. And you knew you were onto something because you administered this in a phase one study and you saw responses. Yeah, we saw responses even at the lowest doses of the Mm -hmm. drug, which is unusual for a phase one study. And, um, you know, the mechanism of activity was well vetted. Mm -hmm. Um, This was not some new target that we don't know if it's really important. You Mm -hmm. know, we knew the AR is important. We knew we had a drug that targets the AR from preclinical data pretty effectively. I think the question really was, could we impact on something important like overall survival through the AR? Right. We, we, that, that, and was, that had never really been shown. Even by clutamide, was there, oh, there was OS benefit? There was no OS benefit, no. obviously, yeah, when no. you wrote your paper in 2003. No, you know, some of the, um, the phase three trials of combined therapy versus mm-hmm. um, uh, monotherapy had a hint of a survival advantage. In the meta-analysis for bicalutamide, it was something like 5%. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not statistically significant. So um, this was, um, you know, survival advantage for hormonal therapy, of course, had been demonstrated in studies of adjuvant hormone therapy with radiation, for example. So Mm -hmm. it's not the only only time hormonal therapy's been shown to uh, improve survival, but in metastatic disease, I think it was the first such demonstration. And then a firm study, which showed the overall survival benefit of enzalutamide, came out in 2012, and Prevail came out in 2014. Yeah. Um, that's very rapid, uh, from drug discovery to early preclinical publication, phase one to phase to multiple phase threes, moving this drug from um, really very in, in the middle of the disease course of metastatic uh, cancer-resistant prostate cancer. Um, how gratifying was that to be a part of those efforts? Uh, you know, that was the highlight of my career. I mean, it was, it was really, um, uh, really, really uh, gratifying and, and genuinely fun um, mm-hmm. uh, at every step of the way. I mean, to see patients respond and benefit from therapy immediately um, was uh, extremely exciting. I remember the, the very first patients treated with Gleevec when Brian Drucker mm-hmm. was developing that drug for chronic myelogenous leukemia, I was a fellow um, looking after those patients here at OHSU. Mm-hmm. And I remember those initial responses. This was a little bit like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't quite as profound and, and quite as durable, perhaps, as Gleevec. But um, you know, we saw responses right away and in a large majority of patients. Um, the people I was working with uh, were wonderful to work with, both my fellow investigators around the country 
and the folks at the company. It was a small company at the time. Very, it was motivation. Yeah, very uh, intimate group. Mm-hmm. I knew everybody. I could talk to the CEO if I wanted to. I could, very different from uh, you know, what it's like uh, when you interact with very large pharma where uh, the cast of characters um, changes or is large. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, different groups work on different things. So it was, it was really fantastic. And met, and Medivation was later acquired by Jans, Jans, was it Pfizer. Pfizer. Yeah. And did that happen during the course of the Prevail? It, it did happen. Pre- was it prior to Prevail? I think it was after Prevail, after Prevail. But gosh, don't quote me on that. Okay. I, I don't track those kinds of transactions too closely. I see. So I guess what struck me when I was leafing through all these articles um, was that in, I think, a fairly short period of time, um, you've had both disappointment and tremendous success in phase three clinical trials, testing compounds that you were involved in from almost, you know, the, the starting line. Um, and that's not a, that's not an experience that many trialists have, even though there are many trialists. And, and so I thought that that was quite interesting. Um, of course, enzalutamide now is priced very, very expensively. I think when I last checked, something like $120,000 per year of treatment. Um, when you were working on it, you, as an investigator, you don't know what they were going to price it at. Um, is that fair to say? Yeah, that is fair to say. And I, I would also say that, um, you know, when we started working on it, um, the, uh, you know, the high price of um, uh, cancer drugs was a less prominent issue than it is today. Mm-hmm. I remember when in, in the prostate cancer field we had um, uh, the immunotherapy product from Dendrion. Mm-hmm. Provenge. Uh, Provenge, which was um, priced, I think, $93,000 mm-hmm. for a full course. Mm-hmm. And we, we thought that was very, very high, even though that's just a one-time course. Right. It's not continued. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, so it, it didn't. I, it wasn't as prominent an issue. I wasn't quite as keenly aware of it as I am today. I see. And that's another interesting development. That from, you know, you must have observed closely when Gleva came out. The price was thirty thousand dollars per year of treatment, and it was thought to be sort of a new ceiling. We were shocked that that could, you know, reach such a height. Provenge came out ninety three thousand dollars per course. Now um, we would consider both of those to be quite deal a deal in today's <laughs> today's marketplace. Um, enzalutamide is an interesting drug because it was developed um, through tremendous efforts through academics who had received significant NIH and I believe DoD funding. Dr. Sawyer's group had some DoD mm-hmm. funding too, and it was the drug that um, Bernie Sanders said. And, and I don't endorse this, I'm not sure even I endorse this solution, that we should march in and take the patent. Um, and there are a couple of provisions under United States statutes where if the NIH was really responsible for the production of a drug, um, that there is some ability for the government to either march in and license that at a very low rate. And there's another thing called you know reasonable and fair compensation for that, a different sort of provision where you could potentially pay the manufacturer cost of all their R&D plus 10%, which usually would be much lower than what we're paying now. Of course, one of the concerns about this cost of drug solution is that 
you do this once or twice, and uh, you do this once, and you've created a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. And you may have a lot of unanticipated countermeasures made by investors in the wake of this. And there may be a tremendous loss of enthusiasm to pursue the fruits of NIH labor because somebody could march in at any time. And so I do realize that this may not, you know, it sounds good, but the unintended consequences may be quite great. Um, but you're somebody who cares about drug price as well. And I read a very interesting article that you, you and a group of um, leading academics recently published in The Oncologist. And it was a bit of a subversive, uh, it was a bit of a subversive article because it made the argument, um, and this is something that physicians are confronted with. We often have patients who are prescribed very, very costly $100,000 per year oral anti-cancer drugs. They take it a little bit, and then for whatever reason, they are do, are not going to take the rest of the bottle. They either, or they have extra bottles that were mailed to them by a mail order pharmacy that they haven't even opened and they're not going to take. And this is either because they discontinued it for toxicity or progression or for what other re, whatever whatever other reason there is. Um, and those patients often bring those drugs to the doctor's office and say, "Look, this is." $50,000 worth of medication, $20,000 worth of medication. I cannot use this, but there are a lot of people in your waiting room who could use this. Um, can you take this medicine and give it to those patients? And of course, we are by law, I think, prohibited from doing that. That would be you know, illegal. Um, you and a group of other leading academics have suggested that perhaps we revisit that and we consider whether or not and under what circumstances we could safely do that. And that to me um, seems like um, the statement of somebody who has become frustrated with the high cost of drugs. Well, let me, before I yeah. dig into that, yeah. uh, since you brought up Marching. Bernie's ideas, yeah. um, I, I would want to say that you know the idea that, that anyone should march in after the fact and um, confiscate essentially um, the, the fruits of somebody's labor that was conducted under the rules that currently exist, that, that's that's just crazy. And, and if you're going to do that, then I think you'd want to argue that the government should then reimburse the investors for all the failures where they put their money in and mm. lost it all because it didn't work. And let me tell you, having been a clinical trialist for 20 years, there's a heck of a lot more of those than successes. Mm -hmm. So I think we need, you know, I, I think drug prices are too high. Yeah. Um, I think when you hear about what happened to the price of Gleevec, which with scale, um, with time, and with competition kept getting more expensive, that's prima facie evidence that there is no free market mm -hmm. mechanism uh, helping us regulate that price. Um, so I think we have work to do, but I, I would not want to be um, associated anyway with a suggestion that... <laughs> that <laughs> that we should deploy radical uh, expropriation-like solutions to, yeah, to such I, a problem. I also am not a huge fan of that solution because I think that um, it, 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 the unintended consequences will be quite tremendous in the marketplace, and it's going to be a very, it's a very destabilizing event. And the thing about healthcare and pharmaceutical costs is, when you're talking about a sector of the economy like healthcare, which is 20% of GDP, and you want to make corrections, which we, I think, legitimately want to make, you got to do it in a. It's like turning yeah. a battleship. You can't just uh, spin it really quickly. Well, I also think you know when when we think about, and I'm not I'm not trying to defend uh, the industry, um, but. It's easy for us to think about um, 
the investor return expectations in very abstract ways. Mm-hmm. You know, big fat Wall Street investors making a ton of money off of the rest of us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you think about it more like it were your own money, you know, let's say it's you, Vinay, who has saved some money. You want to put your kids through college. You want to invest it in something. You can put it in government bonds, and um, you get three percent return. You can put it in the stock market, and who knows what you get mm-hmm. historically? I right. don't know, eight percent, nine percent. Right now, uh, maybe not so yeah, much. Right now, um, or you could put it in a early startup pharmaceutical company with a, a, a nutty idea that's unproven. Mm-hmm. What sort of a return? would it take for you to risk your money? And mm-hmm. my guess is it's pretty high mm-hmm. because you know yeah, that nine out of 10 mm-hmm. times or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, your money's gonna go down the drain. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think that we, we do need to recognize that, not that that's necessarily um, a reason to have the pricing system that we do now, um, but it's not an abstract thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think it's an extremely high risk business and um, uh, we need to recognize that as we think about it. Um, mm-hmm. And then what motivated you for to write this article in The Oncologist? Well, this yeah, article, yeah. you know, so I think the frustration that you um, uh, identify is one that we all as practicing oncologists experience. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have these, these rules that, um, you know, ostensibly are designed to protect uh, uh, patients from getting the wrong drug or adulterated drug or, mm-hmm. or somehow a drug that's not, not safe for them. Uh, but, but the reality is that when you have um, unopened bottles of a drug issued to one patient, uh, it's hard to imagine what the risk is in appropriately reissuing that already paid for medication to another patient in need. Right. Um, and uh, honestly, even uh, open bottles, I, I, I got to wonder, yeah. you know, in, inside a patient community, I bet if you ask the patients what risks they're willing to take, uh, most would feel pretty comfortable uh, receiving a medication from a peer and trusting them. And we, we trust people with a lot of stuff nowadays. We trust people with all of our privacy through Facebook and right. <laughs> other yeah. social media. Yeah. You know, I, I think the world is still built largely on, on trust. And... Um, and people would be willing to extend some trust in this setting. So to see um, uh, patients go without uh, medications or, or patients get the medications at great personal cost, that is uh, you know, uh, putting them at, at significant personal financial strain while, uh, while we're tossing already paid for unused medication uh, into the garbage, no, it's, it's pretty pretty hard to watch. I think it's really a win-win for everyone. This drug is already paid for, so yeah. uh, the manufacturer of the drug is uh, is getting paid for their product. Um, uh, and I, I think we all want to see the maximum number of patients benefit from uh, the advances that we make. So it's just a a small uh, practical step that I think we could take. Uh, to make a small dent in the problem. It's, it's not by any means a mm-hmm. comprehensive solution to access to cancer drugs for, for people in America. Have you, I guess, have you ha- had patients um, who, we all have patients who have the financial difficulty, but we have a lot of mechanisms here at place that we can kind of get that drug to the patient. Um, 
but you've had in your career situations that have frustrated you and that have been difficult to get the drug, the right drug to the right patient? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think um, nowadays uh, in, in my personal practice, uh, copay assistance has been f- fairly effective. Um, uh, but, uh, and I think copay assistance is somewhat controversial. Right. Uh, but, but at least it gives access as, right. a, yeah. as a practical solution. Right. right. In for, our practice, for, for, yeah. our, for our patients, it's, it's been fairly effective. Mm-hmm. But there are um, situations where either the patient's income level is just a little bit too high, uh, and yet the expense is still unaffordable to them, where there's, there's a gap. Or um, I, I've had the occasion where towards the end of the calendar year, the copay assistance seem to, seems to run out, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the foundations that uh, have been set up to help with that um, use up the resources available to them. They're not replenished in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I've had patients who have uh, either struggled um, to afford medications or have actually gone without. I see. Thankfully, it's not the majority of my patients. I see. Um, And no doubt that is, I think, part of what led you to write this article. And I think that in many quarters, the article will push back on the industry because I think to some degree, I guess in their mind, they're probably worried that by allowing these kind of exchanges, it will reduce their, you know, their... Uh, the mar- their market in the future because there's some people going to get access to drugs this way and they won't be buying it or trying to get it through these other ways. You're crinkling your brow. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I would want to give industry a little more credit than that. I, I, I think um, this is a pretty small marginal mm-hmm. um, thing. Yeah. You know, for many patients, we may be able to um, to get them started on a drug using that kind of a supply, but it's not really a, a permanent solution. It would be a little hard to imagine that that we could collect enough such drug to supply a large number of patients with um, uh, with a long term uh, supply of a drug. Mm-hmm. So I could envision using it as a stopgap measure. You know, one of those end of the year times when new copay assistance isn't available yet, or someone's in a donut hole, or you know, some other personal temporary problem. So. Um, I'm not even sure that it would reduce the total prescribing of I the see. drug, honestly. Right. It's certainly not meant right. to do that. It's right. just meant to take yeah. a, a good product that's been paid for and, right. and, and use it. And I mean, perfectly usable. Right. I mean, we don't, we don't toss um, any other <laughs> right. products that we buy. If we, if, we, yeah. if we buy too many apples at the grocery store, I'm free to give you yeah, an extra right. apple right. and you're free to eat it. And, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and you're free to decide whether you trust me not to have you yeah, know, yeah, stuck, stuck a needle in uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> inside <laughs> it. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think that's well put. The, the last thing I wanted to talk to you about is um, sort of being an administrator and, and and taking part in our fundraising campaign and, and the night match that happened a few years ago. But before I wanted to come to that, I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit on apalutamide and enzalutamide for metastasis-free survival. What are your thoughts on, do you use, do you, do you have you embraced those approvals or it, do you have further refinement in whom you consider those drugs? Um, uh, like for instance, PSA doubling time does that play a role? In, or, um, or are you waiting for more information? How have you thought about those those approvals? Yeah, 
Well, you know, so for for those in the audience that aren't mm -hmm. living and breathing this stuff, um, those approvals were uh, interesting because they were on the basis of metastasis-free survival with the overall survival data being immature to date. Mm -hmm. Now, there's there's clearly a, a trend uh, favoring uh, the, the active treatment arm for OS, so it's not that the data are not consistent, they're, just, they're not mature at this point, and we don't know if the OS will hold up. We also don't know if the OS will be any better than starting the drug later. Right, that's uh, the question, right. yeah, right. So that, that leaves a lot of uh, questions unanswered. Um, I think, uh, you know, it's a, it's a challenging thing. There's, there's um, the academic um, data-driven purist perspective that says, well, many of these metastatic events may be asymptomatic. How much benefit are we really providing patients? Um, uh, are the side effects w worth the benefits? Are the costs worth the benefits and so forth? And those are legitimate academic questions to, to answer. Mm -hmm. Um, there's also the reality of taking care of human beings, and mm -hmm. I think most human beings would um, embrace the idea that being free of metastases is generally a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily a good thing at any price. Right. You know, so <laughs> right, right. <laughs> certainly a certain, some burden of side effects, some burden of costs uh, is too high, but being free of metastases is a desirable thing for, for my patients. I think there's not a lot of disagreement about that. So, you know, in our practice, we, we do look at PSA doubling times. The trials were conducted in patients with a PSA doubling time shorter than 10 months, and we know that it's a continuous variable, uh, and, and the faster the PSA um, rise, the, the sooner the risk of metastases becomes a reality. We discuss that with our patients. I, I tend not to recommend it for patients with a longer PSA doubling time than 10 months. Um, and, you know, we, we certainly discuss the side effects of the drugs extensively. Mm -hmm. um, I would say uh, half or more of my patients with castrate-resistant prostate cancer with a rising PSA um, request and choose the therapy after having been fully informed. So I see. It, it, it's really a, a discussion. I see. It's not an automatic prescription. You've got a rising PSA you need this drug. You know, mm -hmm. we recognize that these drugs induce fatigue. They can increase the risk of falls. Um, uh, they can have, you know, a small risk seizure of seizures. Yeah. There, there may be some some cognitive uh, side effects. So these are, you know, these are real, real side effects that become uh, more important as you use drugs for a longer period of time. And then there's, of course, the cost, which um, is a significant factor. So it, it is very much a risk-benefit discussion and a personal discussion. And in these situations, do you also there um, then have a um, a different threshold to, to stop the agent uh, for side effects than you would if it were in the castor-resistant metastatic setting? Um, where it, yeah, yeah. I, I, absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's true in any oncologic setting where yeah. you, you you have to measure the the risk or the danger of the disease versus the risk or the danger that the treatment right. poses. And in a situation uh, like we're talking about, where there are no visible metastases, we're dealing with a biochemical biochemically detectable disease. Mm -hmm. The median time to metastases is measured in years. I think we have some room to take breaks to um, reduce the dose uh, or to um, 
change or abandon therapy if there's significant side effects. There are also many unanswered questions. You know, what do we do with the really excellent responders? What, what happens when, when the PSA goes to close to zero? Mm-hmm. We know from the metastatic studies that those patients have really good outcomes. They mm-hmm. live a long time. Right. Their disease control is quite durable, even with metastases. Can we use intermittent therapy? Right. I think it's a good question to ask. Right. I think another question to ask is, can we can we cure these patients? You know, what? what it, so I think for the really good responders, there's sort of a, a fork in the road scientifically that we need to take. One is, can we de-escalate the therapy, and still get a similar benefit, mm-hmm. like has it's been done in testicular cancer? You know, all kinds of cancers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other is, can we put something on top of it? Um, to push it down to maybe zero. immune therapy, right. you know, who knows? Yeah. And and try to eradicate the disease because mm-hmm. I'm not really going to be satisfied. Neither are my patients until we uh, we we get people permanently disease free. That's what we should be after. And I, I applaud you for for putting for just stating that outright because I think that's something that um, yeah we sh- we should all be more cognizant of as researchers who pursue this that that is really our goal. The last um, thing I wanted to talk to you about. Although we could talk about um, Dr. Devita, because uh, <laughs> we did write an article about that a few years ago. Um, but the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was to get a sense um, for the listening audience about um, what what is it like to be an administrator, somebody who thinks about the broader, I don't know, strategic vision of a of a cancer center, what the institute's role is in the national and international landscape. What is it like to um, um, to take part in, I think some listeners may know that several years ago, Phil Knight, who's been a major benefactor to this university um, for many years, is a uh, is the former CEO of Nike Corporation and the founder of Nike, um, who lives in the area and has great affinity for Oregon, um, has um, challenged the Knight Cancer Institute in particular. Um, that if we were able to raise $500 million, that he would match with $500 million in an effort to um, you know, really do something dramatic um, and different, and perhaps that otherwise would not be happening in terms of cancer research. Um, and you know, you were part of the, that, that, um, that whole campaign, which was successful, um, ahead of schedule, and, um, and you've been in this administrative role for a while now. Um, how is it, is it something you sought out to be an administrator? That's the first question. Because uh, is it a punishment or is it a? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that um, yeah, I, I think one should think of it carefully and in the same way as one would think about any other career choice. I, I think too often do we assume that um, we, we must rise up some sort of a ladder, and we see that ladder as um, you know, junior faculty, senior faculty, and then administrative leadership. And it, it's really a different job. Hmm. Uh, and, um, and you have to decide uh, whether you like it, um, and you have to have the skills or build the skills uh, to, to do that. And they're different skills. I, I think in academic medicine, we don't always do that good a job of recognizing that. We, we promote people uh, on account of their their publications mm-hmm. or their influence in the field mm-hmm. or as a strategy to retain them at an institution and um, and leadership is a whole different thing um, uh, and it's a it's a real challenging thing to do in in um, in academic medicine because not only do you need to have um, 
uh, you know, leadership and administrative skills, management skills, but you also do need to have that clinical and scientific credibility uh, so <laughs> right. that the talented, uh, accomplished, influential, and senior scientists and investigators and physicians respect you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's a um, it, it's a hard job. It's a different job, and I think um, and simply being good in the lab, it's uh, not no assurance of being good at this job. Of course, uh, not in the slightest. <laughs> not the slightest. Okay. <laughs> it really is a different job. Um, I um, I did ask for the job. Okay. Um, I uh, have. Uh, enjoyed many aspects of the job and I've, <laughs> okay. I've been very honored to to be um, uh, given the responsibilities that I've been given um, on harder days I still wonder <laughs> if it was the smartest choice uh-huh. um, uh, you know because academic systems are s- so complicated uh, and um, multi-stakeholder um, multi-interest organizations where you can't necessarily get done what you think needs to get done easily, readily, or quickly. It's it, it's more similar to, um, I think, uh, uh, the legislative branch of our government mm-hmm. than, than it is to a business. I see. Um, really? Wow. Okay. That, well, that's interesting. No, yeah. yeah, you have to um, you have to build support. Uh, build consensus. Um, mm-hmm. Power is... Um, largely elusive. Uh, I mean, there are some people that, that, that wield real power, like the dean or the president. Um, but even those people really largely um, impact the institution through influence rather than power. And influence is much more complicated than power. And, and, tell, and unpack for me the distinction between influence and power. Well, it, you know, Influence means bringing other people along towards I your see. vision. Mm-hmm. So right. if, if for example, you want to um, build a, a, a better clinical research enterprise and you have a, a clear vision of what, what that might look like, even if you're the associate director for clinical research or the cancer center director, without uh, the ability to persuade key investigators, key faculty, other departmental leaders that your vision is the one they should rally about, you're going to bang your head against the wall. Uh, It's not, uh, academic organizations are um, highly decentralized and um, uh, influence uh, rests with many, many different faculty administrators on different topics, on different days, in different settings. So, that, that was a lesson I learned early on. You know, I, I had um, some ideas, and I realized that it's, it, it's as important to learn how to have those quiet hallway conversations and, and get people on board with your idea or listen to them and change your idea based on, based on their advice uh, than it is to just charge ahead. Right. I see. And power is... Um and con- so influence is, I think, the ability to persuade and be persuaded yourself, yeah. and power is the ability to just tell people what to do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and and uh, people have power, uh, but um, you know, another way of thinking about this, I I, I like to watch sports. Right now, mm-hmm. I'm a, an NBA fan. I watch the Portland Trailblazers, and I, and I think about um, some of the leadership roles, even at the highest levels, is akin to the coach. The coach has 
real power in the moment. Mm-hmm. They, he or she can put players on the floor, take them out, right. bench them, uh, give them minutes, instruct them on how to play. But those players soon enough are free agents. Right. And if, if they don't want to play for that coach, uh, you know, they move on. Right. Um, or they don't put their best effort forward. Right. Um, so, you know, would you consider uh, an NBA coach an, an absolute powerful person no, no, not, not really right. um, yeah. even the team owner uh, you know uh, yeah they have authority to do things but you, it's really more about bringing people together and creating an environment for those people to excel and achieve uh, their hopes and dreams and um, uh, having you know fostering a common vision and common culture than a command and control and and that is hard to do mm-hmm and that's very interesting to me. And I think you're you're probably this is probably a very astute observation that I had never even thought about. Um, and perhaps it, and the other extreme where power is more and influence is less is maybe a smaller company um, where the person in charge has you know commanding control of the stock of the all the shares of the company and can really do whatever yeah. they want. Um, and but uh, at a place that is like an academic institution um, where there are lots of diverse faculty who may have their own opinions and egos, which I think is um, must be difficult. Talk a little bit about um, the, 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 the funding initiative and what was that like when, when, you, when that challenge came? This was before my time here. This is yeah. 2013, 2014. 2012. Yeah, so th- I, I think the first thing that that was interesting about it was that we we built a, a fairly radical vision, uh, and uh, I have to give Brian Drucker, my boss, um, much of the credit for that. It was a small group of us that helped Brian refine his vision, but it was very much Brian's vision, and um, and we really departed from what anyone who's reasonable would expect us to do. Mm -hmm. We were a small cancer center uh, with a reputation built around targeted therapy and personalized medicine. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, uh, really beginning with um, Grover Bagby and his commitment as the first founding cancer center director to the understanding of cancer biology as a tool for treatment, um, which was, you know, a visionary strategy um, at the time. Uh, and then going forward with Brian Drucker's recruitment, his work on, on Gleevec and all of the impact of that across our institution. So the logical thing for us to do would have been to sketch out a vision for precision medicine and targeted therapy and build on what we've already done. Mm-hmm. We had the expertise, we had the talent, we had the knowledge and the experience to do that. Mm-hmm. But we chose not to put forward that vision. Mm-hmm. And the reason we chose not to put forward that vision is because by the time we got together to think about it, precision medicine was a universally recognized concept. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you've been a, a critic at times of that concept, but I think even you would agree that there's uh, many, many centers working on it. I would agree, certainly, yeah. And and mm-hmm. if we wipe Portland off the map of the earth, precision oncology would not disappear as a focus area for scientific development. Mm-hmm. So it was even if we did really brilliant work, uh, we would not be 
making an, an outsized impact on that field. Um, whereas when Brian set out to work on, on Gleevec, that really was novel, and it right. really reset people's thinking around the opportunity that uh, targeted therapy presents. And it was difficult to fund, and there were a lot of yeah. naysayers. And yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we looked around and identified the early detection of lethal cancer as, as, a, as a problem that's at a similar mm-hmm. state. Yeah. We, we, we were, at the time, facing serious doubts about PSA screening, about breast cancer screening. These are the two flagship cancer early detection things that have been promoted nationally for decades and now are being questioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we saw a universe where global funding for early detection research was low. Mm-hmm. And while there were others putting effort into it, it's not like nobody was working on it. There was the Canary Center. Um, there are several institutions with an interest. Uh, the efforts were small, and the field was not being pushed forward at a rate that um, uh, enabled us to see progress in our lifetime, I really. See. So we set out to sketch a vision that around a ra- radically advancing uh, the early detection of lethal cancer. And that's the vision we presented to Phil and Penny Knight and that they endorsed. Um, this was before the the... the, the the match. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I that, see. Yeah, I the, didn't know. We presented okay. that vision. Uh, we asked for a billion, and he surprised us by saying, okay, I'll give you half a billion if you raise the other half. Oh, wow. Um, okay. So we, we asked for the whole thing. Yeah. We, we thought it'd be easy. But, you know, his, uh, his approach was um, I've been very challenging. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a, an enormous effort. Uh, because, and, and to be, uh, you know, and just to put it in perspective, um, OHSU, venerable institution, but we don't have the kind of um, philanthropy that something, you know, a, a university, say, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan would yeah. have, you know, that kind of uh, Upper East Side, I should say. Yeah. Uh, uh, so $500 million ask is a is a big ask. Well, I think we were raising something on the order of $10 million a year for cancer prior I to that. And now you're... And okay. we were asked to raise $250 million a year for two years. So it was a, a completely, I mean, it's, it's uh, more than an order of magnitude greater, completely unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, uh, you know, th- the thing that it accomplished uh, beyond the money is connecting us to a, a large community of supporters that mm. previous to that were not engaged with us. I see. In Oregon, three quarters of them, but a quarter of them all around the country and a smaller number uh, from more than a dozen countries around the world. So there's real value in making those connections and, and fostering those relationships in elevating um, our game, not just for the match, but long term. I see. Um, and, and then um, the actual process of doing that uh, must have been nerve-wracking for a while, but then somewhere along the way, you must have you must have been confident that you'll you'll will get there. Well, um, you, you know, it was. I would say early on, we were not that confident. Mm-hmm. We projected confidence as one <laughs> as one would as one would expect. But I think there were some seminal moments. So, mm-hmm. the most important moment was the Oregon Legislature's commitment of two hundred million dollars, uh-huh. um, which counted towards the match. Right. Um, uh, that was a pivot. Without that, I, I don't think we would have stood a chance. Uh, and uh, we made that very clear 
uh, to our legislature, and our legislature essentially created a way for the regular citizens of the state, because it's really not the legislature that gave us the money. It's the people of the state of Oregon, the right. four million or so residents of Oregon. Um, it, it's their money, and we were entrusted with that. And um, uh, without that, I don't think we could have uh, made the match. And then um, the initially anonymous $100 million donation mm-hmm. Uh, that turned out to be Gert Boyle, I see. the founder mm-hmm. of, Columbia of Columbia Sportswear, mm-hmm. one of the founders. Um, uh, you know, those two uh, uh, moments brought us past the halfway point and really put us in a position to win. I see. And um, now, now you're. And by the way, I, I've learned from this discussion that I'm putting too few zeros in my grant request, so I'm going to have to add. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to add some go more. big or go home. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess I would say that my my follow up question is um, um, now I think um, now you're in the hardest part of it all um, because um, you have to you have to do it. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, how has how has that been? Um, I know that um, we have a, a group here called Cedar, which is the Center for Early Detection and Advanced research. And advanced research. Um, And we were able to recruit um, top-notch faculty, Sadiq Esner, uh, to run that. He is somebody whose thinking is a a little bit different than what many might have expected because he's a guy with background in bioengineering Mm -hmm. um, and nanotechnology. And and the reason that that's interesting is that perhaps some of those techniques might be applicable for the detection of you know very small protein signatures or things of that nature, which might have some import here. Right. And then the other thing I want to say that you know I think you just you talked about very briefly, but that I just wanted to highlight was that um, you know uh, that that you all and I've talked to I've talked to Dr. Drucker about this as well are like you know extremely cognizant of some of the um, strengths and yet weaknesses of historical cancer screening campaigns and seek not to uh, recapitulate um, some of those things going forward so it takes another extra level of under- biological understanding to avoid some of those pitfalls for instance finding mm-hmm. you know very highly indolent disease so I just wanted to say that but um, what has it been uh, and so how has it been to actually start this ball rolling um, the Cedar has a very non-traditional, um, hier- non-hierarchical academic structure. Maybe you want to talk about yeah. that and, and what is the Cedar and what do they do? Yeah, so part of our vision was to do something radically different, which is to focus on um, specific goals to advance the, the early detection of lethal cancer, not any cancer. Right. Uh, and But the other part was to do it differently. And, and we wanted to create a model that was a bit of a hybrid between a, an academic uh, approach and an industry approach. You know, if you think about an academic approach, um, it is really uh, to create an environment and hire a bunch of free agents who run small scientific businesses on your campus. You know, mm-hmm. apply for their own grants. You measure success by their grant funding, and really what they're doing um, is generally of little interest. As long as they're getting peer-reviewed money, they must be doing good work, <laughs> and you, uh-huh. let them, uh-huh. you let them be successful. And uh-huh. that's, a, that's a great model. Uh-huh. And it advances general knowledge, and it's critically important, but it's not the model to, ad- to produce a, a particular result. I see. Uh, you know, we looked at things like Bell Labs, um, you know, the, the, the classic, almost cliche thing to, 
to cite is uh, landing a man on the moon. I mean, that that's not exactly what we're doing. That was a physics problem and um, didn't require quite as much discovery. But it's an example of a scientific program with a specific outcome at the end. Right. Um, so, uh, so that um, that idea was implemented through a relatively non-hierarchical organization where uh, we hire people who are then uh, empowered to uh, uh, launch and participate in projects. Uh, and um, really, their employment is all about the projects, not their their title or their status or the location of their office or something like that. Mm-hmm. And anyone can initiate a project. It can be a senior faculty. It can be a, a, a student or a postdoc. Um, you know, those projects are tightly peer-reviewed. There's frequent milestone reviews. We aim to shut down unsuccessful projects very early and move on to better ideas so that we can support high-risk ideas but ask for the, the early experiments to really reveal quickly mm-hmm. whether the idea has legs or not. We do have a cadre of senior mentors, so I it's see. not just a free-for-all. Right. Um, young people have uh, are, are probably the, the engine of creativity and ideas, but but there is real value in somebody who's been around the block and knows how to think about things and how to make things happen. So we each project has a mentor uh, mm-hmm. from among the senior faculty ranks who's responsible for offering advice uh, and being uh, being there to support the development and the execution of each project. And is there an analog for this kind of design elsewhere in academia, or is it really kind of inspired by um, the sort of industrial powerhouses of the past? And, I, yeah. You know, I don't I don't think there's an exact analog. We, we looked also at Genelia Farms, which uh, yeah. is a... Yeah, HHMI, um, Genelia Farms, you know, yeah. Uh, Howard Hughes intramural... Mm-hmm. Institute. It's a, it's an incredible organization um, which we visited um, mm-hmm. when we were getting ready to plan for this, um, and so we we have some commonalities with um, conventional academic departments, with places like Genelia Farms, with places um, like Bell Labs used to have, um, but it's a pretty you know it's a singular design. These are not replicates. So it has its own features, and I think. We will learn whether it was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> we will. Um, well, I um, I could I, I think I would have to have you back here in the future to talk more about some some other questions. I had some other topics, but I I don't want to take up too much of your time. Um, I wanted to thank you for coming on the plenary session stage. We have a, a diverse audience, uh, but I think that people will be very drawn to um, what you had to tell us about, which was. I think um, the many stages of a, of a career and how, you know, as a trialist, one um, has um, the peaks and the valleys of, of one's career. And, um, and a lot of, you know, very interesting observations, I think, about, about trying to be a leader in this environment. Um, and so, Dr. Bear, I want to I want to thank you for coming on the plenary session stage, and and also thank you for this office here. So uh, listeners will know <laughs> they can hold you personally responsible yeah. for giving me giving me this office here. Uh, well, thank uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, it's been a pleasure to have you here on the, on the podcast, and um, and uh, we'll have to have you back to discuss some more um, late breaking prostate cancer trials. And I didn't even get to ask you about uh, my favorite topic, which is Provenge and that clinical trial. Oh um, my! <laughs> but for another time. Uh, thanks, Doctor Bear. I look forward to our next visit. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. 
Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.